Would you pray with me as we begin this morning? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this month, uh, we've been exploring this theme of transformation in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, how Jesus transforms us, stories of transformation that we see where people interact with Jesus and are transformed. And though this is thoroughly Jesus' work to transform us, we also have a vital role in that transformation. Like Joey talked about a couple weeks, like a caterpillar eats leaves before their metamorphosis, we prepare for transformation as well. Just by way of review, if you haven't been with us the last couple weeks or you need a refresher, some of the ways that we prepare, we submit. We submit ourselves to the voice of Jesus in Scripture, like we talked about, and through the body of Jesus Christ, what we call the church. And also we participate. We submit and we participate. We participate in the work that God has for us rather than sort of sitting back on the sidelines and and having opinions about things. And today... We're going to explore in the third week here the, uh, another aspect, the third aspect of that, and that is that transformation requires trust. If we desire to have a transforming work happen in our lives through Jesus, it requires trust. So in order to address this topic today, I want to focus on something that uh, I think is sort of front and center for a lot of us, and that is doubt. Doubt and unbelief. And to do so, I want to hear from God's word, so let's stand together. John chapter 20. Again, I just talked about the importance of the written word. I know you might have an app on your phone. I know we've got it up on a screen, which sort of uh, defeats the purpose of what I just said, although I don't think any notifications are going to come there or anything like that. But we do have red Bibles in front of you. You can grab those. If you brought your own Bible, you can always a great idea to bring your own Bible to church because you may have an opportunity where you want to underline something. Turn to John chapter 20, and you can keep it open through the whole sermon because I'm going to come back to it uh, a number of times. John 20, verses 24 through 29. Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the risen Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and I put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hands and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can have a seat. Perhaps you are aware of a growing trend in the church, in particular the evangelical church, that the Bible would call apostasy, but it's usually in our day and age called deconstruction deconstruction. It's a popular topic, lots of books on it right now. There have been numerous high-profile Christian authors and artists and speakers and 
and pastors who have recently announced that they have renounced their faith. They no longer consider themselves Christians. Now, in my experience, in my reading, and looking through interviews with some of these individuals, there are several reasons that I see why people do this, why this seems to happen. The first is that individuals become disillusioned, um, typically with their conservative church upbringing, uh, the church of their formative years, and they decide that they need to fully distance themselves from that upbringing. Or, second thing, they have honest intellectual questions about the Bible, about creation and science, about the church, about Jesus or faith, and they just don't feel like they have adequate answers, and so they walk away. Or third, they simply want to shed a religious tradition that seems to have so many things to say about how they should be living their lives, particularly if they are steeped in some sort of sin in their lives, and they don't want to be judged for it. Now, maybe you've seen some of these interviews, you've read some of these things. It's easy to write off some of these celebrities uh, you know, losing their faith and go, well, you know, maybe it wasn't really a super genuine faith to start out with. But I want to caution us from that this morning. I think we should be careful to not be so cavalier because doubt and deconstruction are happening everywhere. And in my, in, in my view, it's the most potent I've ever seen it. So I did youth ministry here for, for many years, and I'll tell you one of the total complete, like, high point joys of ministry for me has been to see students, many students live into their faith, launch into adulthood, become ambassadors for Jesus in their families and in their workplaces and in their communities. I mean, what more could you ask for? That is just the best. That's just the best. But there are many other students, former students of mine, who I feel heartbroken over as I've watched them walk away from the faith, renounce their faith, deconstruct their faith, tear it down to the studs with absolutely no plan or intention to reconstruct it. And some of them even doing so going, you know, Hinsdale Covenant was not an adequate experience. It didn't answer the questions that I had. It did, I, I have wounds from that. Oh, that's just a heartache, right? That's just a heartache. I think we would do well to recognize that doubt is sort of the ambient air that we breathe today in a lot of different areas of our lives. I dare say that it is popular right now to be deconstructing your faith. It's a popular thing to be doing, almost like a badge of honor. And I'm guessing that there are some of you here today, sitting here today, who, who if you were being honest, you go, I'm, a, I'm kind of in a period of deconstruction right now. I'm in a, I'm in a place where I'm, I'm deconstructing. And maybe that's not you, but I'm guessing you maybe have a loved one in your life, someone in your family, a friend, something like that is really struggling in this way. I wish I had numerous Sundays to sort of unpack the, the fullness of this deconstruction movement and why it's happening now at this time, but I'm going to get to the heart of it this morning, and that is ultimately doubt. Doubt. At the, at the foundation of, of, of all deconstruction is doubt. Doubt in what I've grown up with. Doubt in the faith that was passed on to me. Doubt in the reliability of the Bible or God or the church. Doubt in the trajectory of the church going forward. Doubt in whether I want to be associated with the Christians that I know in my life. And I want to delve into this in particular because we're talking about transformation. And really the most sensitive heartache that I have in the midst of this is, is not that people I know have doubts. That's fine. Not that they are rethinking things in their lives and, 
and tearing some things off that are not good for them to hold on to. That's good. The, the, the most sensitive heartache that I have is I haven't had a single person that I know who is going through deconstruction tell me I'm drawing nearer to Jesus through my doubts and I'm being transformed by him. I've never heard anyone say that. In fact, those who are in this sort of deconstruction mode typically feel lonely and angry and confused and depressed and judged and even ashamed. And that may be where you're at today. I just want to let you know that's not where God wants you to stay. So that's why we're talking about this. He wants to transform us. And this is where the story of Thomas becomes so helpful for us because it honors the process of doubt without glorifying it. And it gives us hope for how we might actually be able to journey through doubt in our day and age and experience transformation by Jesus, pushing through those doubts rather than ignoring them. So, I tried for a nice, clean, three-point sermon this morning, but I haven't been up in the pulpit for a couple weeks, and some of you know that, that I tend to be this way. This text is too good. Jesus has too much to say. So, seven things this morning. Seven things, okay? We're going to dive into this text and see seven things that Jesus wants to tell us from the story of Thomas in John chapter 20. The first is this. Christ followers can experience doubt. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to experience doubt. The text tells us that Thomas himself had doubts. This is one of the 12 disciples, someone who sat under Jesus. Now, the other disciples had seen Jesus, the risen Jesus, and they were duly convinced that this indeed is the Messiah, the one, this is exactly who he said he was. But Thomas hadn't seen the risen Jesus. So Thomas tells his friends, listen, I've got doubts here. I'm going to have to see this thing for myself. And unless I do, I just, I'm sorry, I just can't believe. I just can't do it. The very fact that this story is recorded in Scripture is evidence that followers of Jesus are allowed to experience doubts, or else it wouldn't be in there. So I need to say something important. This may not be for every one of you, but I know it's for some of you. If for whatever reason you have been made to feel that Christians are not allowed to doubt, that they are not allowed to struggle, that they are not allowed to have questions, if it's been communicated to you in any way that if you have doubts, that must mean that you are no longer a faithful person, if you have come to believe that the Bible or Jesus or the church cannot be tainted by your honest doubts and questions, let me clear something up for you this morning. It should not be that way. It should never be that way. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that's been communicated to you. I want you to hear clearly from me this morning in the church that you can be a a, a serious, fervent Christ follower who has questions, who has doubts, who feels tensions. Jesus, I promise you, Jesus can handle it. Jesus can handle it. That said, it's also important for us to understand the original word here in Scripture. When Jesus says to Thomas, do not doubt, but believe, the Greek word for doubt is actually apistos, which, which is actually translated as the opposite of belief. So a better translation for what Jesus says to Thomas is, don't be unbelieving, but instead believe. In other words, Jesus isn't trying to communicate that Thomas had like a few intellectual questions or a couple sort of loose ends, but otherwise he was, he was in a trusting relationship and he just needed to be a little more convinced. What Jesus is saying is that Thomas, because of the doubts that he had, was in danger of falling into a permanent state of unbelief. 
if Thomas can't see his, his wounds, can't touch them, then he is willing to throw the whole thing out. Think about that. Years of sitting under Jesus, and Thomas says, if I can't do this, I'm out. He was ready to renounce his faith. That's that permanent state of unbelief. And as I journey with many people through faith deconstruction happening in all sorts of various lives around me, I see kind of the same thing, that there's a tough question that they have that they don't have an answer for, or they have a grievance against the church, or a grievance against God, or just earnest frustrations with the Bible, and they feel like because they can't sort that one thing out, they've got to throw everything out. Doubts are okay. Doubts are natural. I'm not even telling you to avoid doubt in your life. But what I'm saying is we don't want our doubts to lead us down a road to unbelief. Because just as Jesus commands Thomas, don't be unbelieving. I think that command applies to us today too. More on that a little bit later. Second thing, doubt is often a process that takes time. Doubt's a process that takes time. Pastor Joy's been using the illustration of uh, Eustace Scrub throughout this sermon series. Eustace Scrub is a character in C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. If you've never read it, please do that today. If you've read it, read it again. Uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. And, and Eustace becomes this incredible avatar for transformation in that story. And so we've been putting up this picture of a dragon for three weeks. No one's asked me, like, what's the deal with the dragon? Why, why is there a dragon in the sermon series? Um, the reason is because in the story of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Eustace on, is on this island and he finds a cave that's filled with gold and jewelry and there's this bracelet and he puts it on and, and there's something mystical about it because it turns him into a dragon. And it's highly uncomfortable for Eustace to be in the body of a dragon. But it's in that state, that really uncomfortable place, that Aslan begins to transform Eustace's heart. Now that process takes a while. And it's really uncomfortable, even painful. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. And I'm sure that Aslan could have done this a different way, but he didn't. For Eustace, he allowed him to take on scales. He allowed him to take on this monstrous body in the story because he had to learn about himself. He had to walk through that difficult process of transformation, and it took time. And I think it's often the same for us. We can sort of think that we might be able to sneak around these moments of sort of reckoning and doubt in our lives, but it, the reality is we have to walk through it with integrity in order to be changed. You know, right after Thomas makes that declarative statement of what it would take for him to overcome his doubt and believe in the risen Jesus, which actually sounds a bit like Eustace, like I'm not going to do this unless I'm able to see Jesus and touch those wounds, that very next thing the text tells us is that it was another week until Jesus showed up in the midst of the disciples. <clears throat> sorting through our doubts, coming to a place of resolution, it often takes time. And God doesn't always answer our deepest questions right on the spot. I, think about it from Thomas's standpoint. That's probably a pretty long week for Thomas, don't you think? I mean, it's only a week, but he's with all of his buddies who have seen the risen Jesus. They're like high-fiving and isn't this the greatest thing ever? And he's sitting going, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I'm still in my doubts. I'm still in, this, I'm still in this place where I can't believe. I think it was a really long wait uh, for Thomas for that week. And if you're in a stage of, of doubt, and it feels like you've been there for a long time, just know that it is often a long process. Push through it. Because there is really good news at the end of that, of that process when we walk through it in, with integrity. Which brings me to number three. 
Jesus is breaking down barriers to make himself known. After a week had gone by, the text tells us that the disciples were in that room together, same room, doors were closed, they were locked. I'm sure they were fearful. There were people who were after them who wanted to stop the story of the risen Jesus. And then Jesus shows up in their midst. Now, the text doesn't really tell us how this happens, but it sure seems to me like the writer of this gospel, John, is trying to communicate that Jesus like walked through the walls to, to be with his disciples, that all of a sudden he is there, that he was unencumbered by locked doors and walls and barriers and whatever else. He is making himself known to his followers. Friends, it kind of preaches itself, doesn't it? If you are someone who doubts, if you are in a state of doubt, if you have a loved one who's steeped in doubt and it's a real struggle, Jesus does not turn away from you. He doesn't go, that's a lost cause. He doesn't, go, doesn't say, I'm going to go to the ones who actually believe in me. He doesn't make you grovel before him. He doesn't turn you away. He doesn't make you chase him around. He is coming to you, and there is not a barrier in all of creation that's going to be able to keep you from the love of Christ Jesus. Jesus is unencumbered in his pursuit of you, and he is actively walking through walls to come and be with you. That's really good news. That's really good news. And so is this. Fourth, your conditions are probably pretty silly in light of Jesus. When Thomas finally comes face to face with Jesus, he's actually invited by Jesus to enact those very same conditions that he placed on him. Remember Thomas said, unless this, unless I can see and I can touch, I'm not going to believe. He puts conditions upon his belief. Well, Jesus comes, and what does he say? He's like, go ahead. Put your fingers in my, in my hands. Touch the wounds. Touch the scars. Come and look at them as close as you want to. Come, put your finger in my side. Kind of a weird thing, right? See these wounds. Go for it. You put these conditions on, go for it. There's actually a, a, a very famous painting by the artist Sheravaggio. Maybe you've seen before. Beautiful painting of this exact moment, this like incredible inspection of Thomas where he's literally putting his finger into the wound in Jesus' side. Pretty amazing photo. And look at the disciples coming in too. Like, oh yeah, I want to see this too. It's a beautiful painting, but it actually doesn't communicate what the text actually communicates. If you read the text closely, the text says that Jesus invites Thomas to do this. And he says, don't be unbelieving, but believe. And the text actually says that Thomas didn't even need to touch him to believe. Those conditions that he had placed on, on his own belief were silly in the presence of Jesus. He didn't need to touch his side. He had all the answers that he needed in Jesus. Or as the uh, giant of spiritual, Christian spirituality, Henri Nouwen, once wrote, getting answers to my questions is not the goal of the spiritual life. Living in the presence of Jesus is the greater call. Getting answers to my questions is not the goal of the spiritual life. Living in the presence of Jesus is the greater call. So when we have genuine encounters with Jesus, our doubts and the power that we give to those doubts begin to just melt away. And what was Thomas' declaration at that point? Well, that's point number five. Jesus gets the last word on our doubt. Jesus gets the last word on our doubt. Instead of touching Jesus' side, like the painting says there, or portrays, 
Instead of doing that full inspection, Thomas simply proclaims, my Lord and my God. That's his declaration. All of Thomas's doubts have melted away. Now, does that mean that Thomas doesn't have any more questions for Jesus? That he understands everything fully? That he can explain how this person just walked through a wall to come and stand in the room with them? No, of course not. He still has questions. But Thomas knows all that he needs to know. He knows the important thing. Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is alive. And I love that the story of of Thomas does not end with him sort of stewing in his doubts to the point where he falls into this state of unbelief. Instead, he has an encounter with Jesus that melts away his doubts. And I pray the same for everyone who is in a, a state of serious doubt and deconstruction. I pray that Jesus might get the last word in all of our lives over our questions, over our doubts, over the things that we can't reconcile. Interestingly, you know, we have over 30 really reliable manuscripts of the Gospel of John that's that, that compiled together makes the Bible that you read today. They've been uncovered by archaeologists and copied and so on and so forth. And about a third of the manuscripts that we have end the Gospel of John right here at this verse. When Thomas says, my Lord and my God, end of the Gospel of John. In fact, in some of your Bibles, there, it may even indicate that starting at verse 29, the rest of the, the book of John is a disputed text. We're not exactly sure which, which ending is right. But it is certainly intriguing for me. I'm, I'm not sure which ending is right, by the way. But it's certainly intriguing for me to think of these being the very last words in the entire Gospel of John. The good news that John wants to tell about Jesus is what? A doubter coming to encounter the presence of Jesus and going, my Lord and my God. Great way to end a book. That's the kind of transformation from doubt to trust that John goes, I want that to be the climax of the story because this is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus does. I love the idea of Jesus getting the final word over our doubts. But we are going to continue to verse 29 even though it's a disputed text because it's an important one. Jesus says in verse 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And that brings me to number six. I'm on, I'm on point six. Are we, are we good? You're with me? You're like, I wish it would have been three. Okay, no, we're on six. Okay, two more to go. Doubt should never be the goal. Doubt should never be the goal. Jesus said, blessed are those who don't have the advantage that you have, Thomas, of me standing in their midst and saying, yeah, come, touch, do whatever you want to do. They don't have the advantage of seeing me and touching me, and yet they still choose to trust me over their doubts. My biggest concern with the focus on doubt today and deconstruction today is that we can begin to make an idol out of our doubts, that doubts can become sort of this litmus test of whether or not we really have faith at all, that if you're, if you're not all consumed with, with doubts, then you're some sort of mindless believer who isn't really thinking through things clearly. But Jesus here says, blessed are those, even us, who choose to trust over our doubts, even when we can't see, even when we can't prove it, even when every question isn't perfectly answered. Because faith is ultimately a relationship of trust between people, between persons. To have faith is not about a right set of beliefs, but it's having trust in the person of Jesus. Our doubts are never worthy of our trust, but Jesus is. So when we hold on to doubt, 
when we esteem it too highly, when we hold on to it too tightly, we are essentially placing our faith in ideas about God rather than God himself. God forbid that we would find all the adequate answers that we need to the questions in life and then miss the fact that Jesus has been standing in our midst the whole time. The one who's actually worthy of our trust. No, doubt is not the goal. The goal is to travel through our doubts with integrity so that we might meet Jesus himself and place our trust fully in him and recognize his presence among us. Which brings me to the last point, number seven. Thomas is transformed, but it's not through his doubts. He's, tra- he's transformed through trust. Uh, Thomas is not spoken again in Scripture after John chapter 20. Um, but the early church tradition, as recorded by Eusebius, actually tells us that Thomas continued in ministry. He continued to be transformed by this trusting relationship with the risen Jesus. So much so that he traveled all the way to India. That's where tradition has him, in India. And he establishes seven churches in, in the city of Kerala. It's a place you can go visit today. And it was in India that he was brutally martyred for his faith. And I, I, I'm just confident that at the very end of his life, he was still going, my Lord and my God, right, to the very end. And those churches, I just learned this this week, this blew my mind. Those churches were the basis of a a group that is now called St. Thomas Christians, a group of over 10 million Christians today who bear the name of Thomas and have done so since the second century AD, St. Thomas Christians. There's a group of St. Thomas Christians here in Chicago. Amazing. It's so beautiful to think that even as we partner with Hindustani Covenant Church in India, though they're not a St. Thomas church that that faith tradition in that land comes from this, this doubter who's been transformed into a person of trust. And he brought a nation to the feet of Jesus, and he continues to do so today. How amazing. I think it's regrettable that Thomas is known as Doubting Thomas. You've heard that before, Doubting Thomas. Because that's not really what his legacy is. In fact, I think if Thomas were standing here today and he was reading this text with us, he would be like, Why are you focusing so much on the fact that I was doubting? Don't you understand what the story is about? This story is about trust. This story is about my Lord and my God. Being able to say that in the face of whatever doubts to the point where they don't matter as much anymore. He was not transformed by his doubts. Doubts don't have that kind of power to transform. I think he should be called trusting Thomas because he was transformed by trust in the face of his doubts. So that's the story of Jesus and Thomas. And I don't know where that puts you here today. I don't know if this is a freeing thing for you in the midst of some of the doubts that you may have. I don't know if you sit there and you go, no, I'm just, I'm not convinced by this. Or maybe you have someone again in your life that you feel a real burden for in this way. But what I want to invite you to do is let's join together in a desire to seek the transformation that Jesus gives. And so what I want you to do is I want you to place yourself in that upper room. We're going to pray in just a minute. I want you to place yourself in that upper room. And maybe it's you. Maybe you're like, I've got doubts. I'm, in a, I'm going through a thing right now. I'm going through a period where I'm, I'm struggling with this, where this is kind of at the forefront of my mind. And you can place yourself right in the position of Thomas. And maybe that's not you today, but I, I want you to know that this still applies to you. So maybe you think of someone in your life who you know is really struggling with faith, who's 
deconstructing without much of a plan for any sort of reconstruction. And you can place them in that place as we pray. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? I want you to just visualize you or someone you love in that room. The disciples around you are joyous and vibrant because they because they see the risen Christ. But you're not there yet. And it feels like a long wait. And then imagine Jesus showing up walking through walls to be with you and saying, I have the answers to your questions. They're right here. Come and see. And imagine just in the face of of Jesus standing before you, the ability to just take whatever doubts that you have and uncertainties that you have and struggles that you have and grievances that you have and just handing them over to Jesus and saying, I trust you my Lord and my God, I trust you. And then as you transfer those doubts onto Jesus, feeling the warmth of the Holy Spirit transforming your heart and saying, now your life is going to be guided and defined by a trust in me. Lord, I ask that for my friends here today, for those on the live stream, for all those who hear this, for those that we pray for. May we come to trust in you and be transformed. Amen. Amen. Let's go into a time of prayers of peace.